time for praise and prayer requests this morning. Um, on my list, uh, we've got uh, Julie had her biopsy. If you see her today, um, encourage her. I know this can't be easy for a young, young any young person, any person. So um, uh, we pray that the results will, will be a positive thing. Um, Cliff, your mother doing okay? Okay. Right. And your workplace still needs prayer for that uh, situation. Okay. So pray for Cliff and his workplace, his mother, as she recovers from the fall. Um, pray for, again, for Micah in his job situation that he might uh, be with us here on the Lord's Day. Um, pray for the Picken family, uh, that God would do a work of. Uh, in that family, particularly watching over the kids. And got any news, uh, good news I hear on, on Psyche? Okay, we've been praying, so there's a praise there. Psyche got a job. What's he in the Elkhart area? Okay, so managing at Chick-fil-A. Um, praise God again for Annika's return to work after her gallbladder surgery. Um, from what I hear, Jonathan's uh, thyroid surgery went well. Uh, he was supposed to spend the night in the hospital and then come home. I understand that that's exactly what happened. So we thank God for, for that. Um, pray that his recovery would go well. The doctor wants him to stay home for three weeks. Uh, until he's fully recovered. Um, pray for Beth and uh, her grandfather uh, who had a stroke uh, and they've decided to place him in hospice. Uh, so uh, continue to pray uh, for her. She said uh, this particular grandfather she was closer to than the other grandparents. And uh, Pray for uh, tow bars while they're traveling and visiting with Benjamin. So that's all the list I have. Uh, any other prayer requests or praises that you might have? We were praying for our neighbor Karen. Yeah. And she had a triple bottle Joe had a chance to visit her and again to uh, plant some seeds. This was God's doing. She still has some work to do here. That's why she's recovering. Um, anybody else? Okay. All right, we'll take these things before our Lord in prayer. And uh, again, Pastor's in Canton, so pray that uh, things will go there well for him. And Pastor Cook will be here. So pray for the service this morning as well. So um, <clears throat> let's go before our Lord. <clears throat> Lord God, you are great and worthy of worship. How great thou art. Our Lord, we have been sinful creatures in your sight. We've disobeyed your laws. We have uh, turned our back on you and, and your commandments. And yet, Lord, you love us. You drew us closer to you. You chose us out of all the others to uh, repent of our sins and to cry out for mercy. And you have provided that mercy in, in abundance through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, who you sent forth from the glories of heaven to die on our behalf, to take the wrath that we deserve upon his own soldier. We pray, Lord, that you would abide with us this day as we gather to worship him, as we gather to praise him, as we gather as a community of believers to uh, bow down in a humble, heartfelt uh, praise and honor uh, to the great God that we worship. Lord, you have been good to us by answering our prayers in the past. 
So, Lord, we thank you that uh, Julie has gone through this biopsy. And we pray that um, uh, the results would be a good and positive results. And relieve the fears that she has and her family members have. And we pray, Lord, that um, this would only strengthen her faith and that, Lord, you would abide with her uh, daily. Uh, be with Cliff's mother as she recovers. We pray, Lord, that um, again uh, uh, you would wrap your loving arms around her and, and that her strength would be drawn from upon high. Uh, be with Cliff as he ministers with her and, and as he also is uh, providing for his family. We pray that you would be with him in the workplace. Uh, Lord God, we pray that uh, uh, business would come their way and that they may have opportunities to um, praise and honor you there because of, of the goodness that you have pro provided for you, them. We ask the Lord this morning, again, uh, uh, without hesitation and with uh, perseverance, that we ask for uh, a job for Micah to provide for his family, that he might be with us here on the Lord's Day as his heart desires. We pray as well for the Pickin family, Lord. Um, we ask that you would uh, intervene in a special way, a loving way, a humble way. We pray that hearts would be changed and uh, repentance would be sought and uh, forgiveness would be granted. Uh, we pray especially for the children. Uh, remove any bitterness from their hearts. Uh, Lord, may they love their parents and um, obey them for uh, that is... Uh, their duty as children, but also to be done out of love. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would be with uh, um, Psyche as he starts his new job. We pray, Lord, that uh, he might be uh, a witness to you in this workplace. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would abide with him, that the learning curve would go easy for him, and that uh, he'd be able to pick up on the uh, uh, things that he needs to learn. We thank you for the provisions that he might be able to provide for his family. Lord, we, we thank you for the uh, recovery of Annika as she returns to work. Thank you for answering our prayers. Lord, uh, be with Jonathan uh, Weldon as he recovers from this thyroid surgery. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, he thinks he can recover sooner than three weeks, but we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, this would be a time of uh, reflection, a time of... Uh, communion with you, a time to be with the family. Uh, may this be an opportunity for him to strengthen himself emotionally and spiritually and physically. Be with uh, our sister Beth as she uh, dealing with the uh, uh, soon separation of her grandfather. Uh, Lord, it seems that you're ready to call him home. Pray that uh, even through this death that uh, uh, your love would be revealed that it would be pointed out to the whole family that it's appointed unto once for man to die, then the judgment. So maybe souls would be saved as, uh, as she uh, tries to exhibit the love of Christ through her faith. Be with uh, our neighbor Karen as she continues to recover. Lord, may this be uh, a time where she can reflect on how uh, tenuous life is after death, um, she will face the Lord and Savior. We ask as well that you be with the Tobars as they travel and enjoy their uh, time with Benjamin. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would bless this service with Pastor Cook and be with uh, Pastor Walden and, and Canton, we ask. May your spirit dwell with them uh, and that the ministry of the word would go forth. So, Lord, we pray for all these things in Jesus' precious name. It's been a while since I've been to a baseball game, but uh, as I recall, there used to be vendors inside the gate, and, and the guy says, you can't tell the players without a program. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to kind of review some of the players since it's been a while since I was here, uh, thanks to uh, some medical issues. Um, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 9. And we're going to start with verse 30. <laughs> 
just a recap of, of what the players are doing. Uh, Abimelech is the son of Gideon. Uh, he is a half-breed. He's half-Israelite. Uh, He's half-Canaanite. And he has gone to the city of Shechem and convinced them that uh, he should be their king. Uh, he claims to be their brother. And uh, they uh, anoint him king in the uh, uh, temple of Baal. And as a result, um, he goes forth and kills his 70 brothers with the financial support from the people in Shechem. And um, then he appoints um, I, uh, kind of like a mayor of, of the city of Shechem, one of his right-hand men, a, a, a man by the name of Zebel. And he's kind of running the show for Abimelech. At, uh, at Shechem. And then one night, um, along comes this um, rowdy, um, uh, roughneck guy by the name of Gael. And um, he is saying to the people of Shechem, Why should we follow Abimelech? He's, I'm a full blooded Canaanite. Uh, I'm your true uh, uh, leader. Um, after all, Abimelech is the son of the Baal fighter, Gideon. Um, so why should we follow him? And that kind of sets up the, um, the setting of, of where we pick up at uh, um, today uh, in verse 30, um, chapter 9. And so um, Zebel hears this uh, Gael. He, they had a, a big festival. They went out and um, made fresh wine and, and they started talking, and uh, the talking got out of hand, and pretty soon, you know, the, they're bragging and boasting, and, and Zebel takes all this in, and he, and he communicates then to Abimelech, is what's happening here in Shechem. So starting in verse 30 of chapter 9, and when Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the word of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. And he sent messengers to Abimelech privately, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, arise by night, and you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall come about in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you are able. So Abimelech and all the people with him arose by night, and they lay awake against Shechem in, in four heads, or some interpretation says four companies, um, if we would equate a company uh, in our army today, it would be uh, around 100 men. So if there are four companies, we're talking about maybe uh, over 400 men here with him. Verse 35, Now Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. Got your my little V button pusher here. So we have Shechem up there in the blue square. We have uh, <coughs> Gael out there, uh, and then down here in the red square we have uh, Abimelech and his men coming down out of the mountains uh, towards the city. So verse thirty-six says. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebel said to him, You're seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. And Gael spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land. And one head, or company, comes by the way of the 
diviner's oak. In verse 38, then Zebul said to him, where's your mouth now? And which, and which you said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. So Gael went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. <clears throat> so he, he, he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of the leaders of the town. He did all this bragging and boasting. And so now he's going out to fight against them, um, more or less forced to do so uh, against his will. Then Abimelech remained at, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 40. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And then Abimelech remained at Aramah, and Zebul drove out Gael and his brothers, so they could not remain in Shechem. So to kind of summarize here, Zebul found out about Gale's uh, all-night party. Um, and um, so he contacted Abimelech that very night. And his advice was to strike immediately before Gale could uh, pull together a larger uh, force of uh, show of force. And probably more importantly, before he could sober up from the all-night party that uh, they experienced, and um, so that was his advice to Abimelech. Strike now and strike hard and strike early. So uh, Abimelech divided his forces into four groups. And if you would count Zebul and any men he had within the city, that would be a, another group um, uh, that was called the fifth column. as kind of like the spies and the saboteurs during wartime. Um, so... You have uh, Zebul inside the city working against Gael from the inside. You have Abimelech working against him on the outside. So needless to say, Gael's local rowdies uh, were no match for the establishment army of, of Abimelech. And Gael's bunch was, very, was not very brave. And verse 40 says they, many died trying to get back into the city. And so um, we have a victory here for Abimelech and a defeat uh, for Gael. Verse 42. Now it came about the next day that the people went out into the field and it was told to Abimelech. The people still had to make a living. People still had to plant crops, harvest crops. They, they had to go out and work the fields. So they lived inside the city, which was walled for protection. They went outside the city uh, to work in the fields. Uh, verse 43, so he took the people and divided them into three heads, or three different companies. And he lay in wait in the field. When he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, he arose up against them and attacked them and Scripture says, smote them. Verse 44, Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood at the entrance of the city gate. And the other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and smote them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city, and he killed the people who were in it, and then he raised, razzed the city, raised the city, and sowed it with salt. Lawrence Toombs was the archaeologist who uh, excavated the site of Shechem. And he wrote this uh, in a book in 1979. 
he said that um, the devastation um, was complete. He said the city underwent violent destruction, which obliterated its buildings and left the site a wilderness of ruins. At the time of the destruction, the culture of the city was fully developed. The end of the city is almost certainly to be attributed to its capture by Abimelech. So what we have here now is Abimelech, who's a very, very angry man. He had this rebellion against him, um, and he uh, wants to strike out in, in, uh, against those who opposed him. So he, his wrath must be satisfied and appeased. So he will be avenged against all these people who turned against him, and he ended up killing them all. So once the people had come out of the city to their daily labors, one company of men stationed itself near the city gate, and then the other two companies went out. So when the people went out to the fields to work, these two companies came together in a pincer movement and, and just killed everybody in between them. And, of course, there was another one back here at the gate preventing them to retreat back into the city. And then, after he had killed the laborers of the field, uh, Abimelech goes into the city, and he kills everyone in it, and he sows it with salt. Sowing of the salt is an emblem of the curse. If you recall, God cursed the ground. And uh, so we see here that, uh, in effect, the ground is cursed because nothing will grow there with the salt being sowed in it. It will become barren, just like uh, the archaeologist described. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the house of Elbereth. And it was told Abimelech that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem, the town of Shechem, were in the tower and were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees, and lifted it, and laid it on the shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do like me. Verse 49, And all the people also cut down each one of his branch, and followed Abimelech, and put them on the inner chamber, and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside, so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Ancient cities frequently not only had walls that went around the city for protection, but there was a second wall, oftentimes, around the highest part of the city. And quite often there was a tower built there, and sometimes that tower is referred to as a citadel. And so the leaders of uh, the city uh, would then retreat to that citadel, that tower, uh, for protection. So apparently the temple of uh, Baal Bereth uh, was located in the strongest part of the citadel or in the tower of Shechem. And remember, sometimes in Shechem, the leaders of, of the town were called Baals with a small b, uh, meaning masters. Um, and so uh, we have here the small b, Baals retreating to the big b, uh, Baal temple. And so the Tower of Shechem remains, uh, reminds us a little bit of uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, 
the seat of humanistic government uh, at the Tower of Babel was a man's attempt to storm the gates of heaven and take God's throne for themselves. the temples might look like. Um, this would be, again, a, similar to what they think that uh, the Tower of Babel might have looked like. Uh, and this is what we call a ziggurat or a tower. Um, and then at the very top of the tower or temple is the tower where the uh, people would retreat to. Um, Want to hit that again, Joe? Shechem had, had uh, Abimelech as a king, and this was referred to as a city-state. And um, there are a number of city-states, and of course, if you know your Greek history, Athens and Sparta uh, were city-states, and each had their own leaders. Uh, they were kind of like a small country within themselves. And each one of the city-states would have a ziggurat to their god, it, and the gods changed from city to city, uh, depending on on who they chose to worship. And so um, we see here then the top of that ziggurat is where they would have uh, retreated to. And the leaders take refuge in the temple of their god, and they we had the word Elbereth here, and as Brother Cliff has pointed out to us, E-L-L means God. Um, and so um, it is stressed that either the power of God Almighty that we refer to, or in this case, a, a lesser God, the Baal God, uh, they're referring to, uh, depending on, on which one they're talking about. So we see here that the Baal Bereth is uh, kind of sarcastically called El Bereth um, to stress uh, his inability to really defend his supporters. Baal does not prove again his uh, help. He does prove again his helplessness. He can't do anything because he's uh, only an idol. And he's and he's not worthy of worship. Uh, these people went ahead and, and continued to give their lives to him. Um, so we have here, going back to Jotham's uh, prophecy, we have these bramble people in the tower, and we have the bramble people setting fire to the tower. Um, so it's a reflection of, of, of Jotham's uh, prophecy that fire would come out of Shechem and then fire would come out of Abimelech. So we see this is exactly what uh, the prophecy being fulfilled here. And with Abimelech's destruction of the city people and their leaders, uh, we see, uh, again, the symbolic crushing of the head uh, from Genesis. The head of uh, the, the leaders of Shechem are crushed, again, um, symbolically that uh, God will conquer the evil uh, people of this world. But perhaps the most important thing of the whole idea here is that uh, uh, it was Baal's loyal follower, Abimelech, who's the one who burns Baal's temple. Um, the war of Baal against God ends with Baal's temple uh, being destroyed by his own followers. And here again we see God's uh, irony, uh, just as in the song of Deborah, we laugh to see that the wicked, uh, defiant enemies of God are destroying themselves, just like the Midianites were destroying themselves in the camp. We see here the uh, people of Shechem, the followers of Baal, are destroying themselves as well. So we see here, I think, a, a glimpse of, of the heart of pagan uh, religion. It's not 
founded on its gods, but it's founded on humanism. It's founded on man rather than the gods. It is uh, nothing to Abimelech to burn the uh, Baal's temple uh, because what's important to Abimelech is not Baal, it's himself. The gods only exist to serve men and to scare them. If we get uh, mad at the gods, then we can burn their temple and teach them a lesson. And this kind of surprises us or seems strange to us because we would think that people uh, would worship their god the same way we worship ours uh, in the Christian point of view, but that's not the case. In Baalism or humanism, it is ultimately man who's most important, not the gods. So we have um, man superseding or seeking to be above their gods. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, very much like we saw in Shechem. And all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And then they went up on the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it, and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. Okay, John. It's hard to make out that picture, but... Uh, but a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Now... <clears throat> looks a little bit bigger here than it did up the other picture, but <laughs> when they were grinding the grain, there was a, a large stone on the bottom and a smaller stone on top, and, and quite often that smaller stone was, was moved with a handle, and it would grind the uh, grains into flour um, or meal, and uh, what we're talking about here is that the woman took the smaller wheel with her, and without it, the bottom wheel is useless. And so it's kind of like a, uh, locking your door at night. You know, you don't want anybody to steal anything. If you take, if you take out the uh, upper wheel, there's no way of grinding uh, the grain. So, um, verse 53, uh, a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, least to be said to, of me. A woman slew him. So his young man pierced him through, and he died. Verse 55, And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his own place. I think one of the things that we can note from the life of Abimelech is that sin destroys the mind of a man. Abimelech had now become a fool. His anger had grown so much and it had known no bounds that he determined to destroy everything that he could find, everything within his reach. If he can't have it, then nobody was going to have it. So he goes up and he fights against the city of Thebes. He <clears throat> tries the same tactic here that seemed to work at the Temple of Baal back in Shechem. But this time it backfires and he is killed. Even though he tries to die honorably, his humbling death at the hands of this woman is preserved in Scripture. And it's here for all generations to, again, laugh or snicker at uh, what sin will do to uh, destroy a man. 
And again, we see here, uh, going back to Genesis, the crushing of the head of the serpent or, or the evil man. The woman is, <clears throat> once again, it is a woman who crushes the head. So we tie Abimelech's death in uh, to that of Sisera's uh, earlier in Judges with the tent peg and the pounding of that by a woman, the crushing of the head by a woman. Now keep in mind that stoning was the prescribed method of capital punishment in the Old Testament. And Abimelech uh, is stoned to death here. Uh, it's a fit pay, uh, payment for his murder of his brothers. Uh, just as he had slain them on one stone, so he is slain by one stone. You might say it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I think it's important that we might take note of the details here. Take note that it was not a mere stone. The Holy Spirit takes the trouble to write out the fact that it was an upper millstone. And most likely it was kept from being stolen. Um, and this woman had removed the smaller upper stone and carried it with her. So in the providence of God, it's an implement of work that kills the man of blood. If you recall back earlier uh, lessons where we talked about Zechariah, uh, where there was a distinction between the good trees and the brambles and between, in Zechariah, the horns and the carpenters. Ultimately, it's the craftsman, or in this case, a miller, who will overcome the horns of the bramble when <coughs> and destroy them. So some of you might think I'm, I'm making a little bit much of this verse. Um, but keep in mind that the Spirit uh, could just as easily have written it this way. It could have been, but someone threw a stone and it hit Abimelech so that he was dying. But the Holy Spirit didn't write it that way. Uh, what the Spirit chose to write is that he calls out attention to the woman, the Spirit calls out attention to the millstone, and the Spirit calls out the attention to the crushing of the head. So where those type of details are given to us by the Holy Spirit, I think we should take note of those things. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech when he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads and the curse of Jotham and the son of Jerubbabel came to them. These two verses make it plain that God had a plan and God was in control of avenging the family of Gideon. And he did it so against Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and God returned their wickedness upon their own heads, just like the prophecy had said he would. We may rejoice. We uh, should, uh, if we do rejoice over the fact that uh, these people were taken care of, we should do it with fear and trembling. Uh, fear and trembling in seeing how God avenges the blood of his saints. And so we see here, God emerges in final victory over the God of Baal, once again. So we see Baal was destroyed by his own followers. The wicked destroyed themselves. And the children of Israel were able to go home and put this unnecessary war behind them. As we see, it was the ambitions of sinful men who would not leave their uh, fellow men alone to work out their own problems with the law of God as their guide. Rather than having God be the divine ruler over their lives, 
some of these ambitious, sinful men like Abimelech uh, were trying to usurp God's power and authority. And as a result, uh, blood was shed. And in fact, in this case, it was their own blood for the most part. But let's remember this all started from a seemingly minor compromise made by Gideon. The idea that he would have more than one wife and therefore Abimelech was born. So let's pray that we would not make similar compromises with the world. That our culture around us would stay out of our church. We would fight to keep the purity of scripture. For it is our children or grandchildren who could pay uh, the consequences if we compromise. I don't know how many have been following the news, but there's a conference being held down south by Pastor Andrew Andy Stanley, where he's saying it's important for the church to unhook the New Testament and the Old Testament, and that we should live only with the New Testament. And at that conference are going to be uh, two men who are married to two other men, and um, as well as some representatives from the uh, LGBTQ community. We see compromising taking place within some of the churches even today, just like Gideon compromised. We can't allow that to happen. Let me read a, a paragraph from a commentator, not a commentator, but a, a writer named Eric Erickson. He says, too many Christians have been willing to compromise their values, their views of leadership, and their views of character. They claim to do, do not want to want a priest as a president, they just got that in 2016. Since then, they have gotten drag queen story hours, massive number of states embracing abortion until birth through changes in state constitutions and rampant transgender ideology. Maybe if we are quiet, we could hear God whispering to us, we have the king of all creation on our side. We do not need to compromise at the altar of politics. Instead, we need to reflect on Jesus Christ. Well, this brings us to a, a point in the book of Judges um, where <clears throat> this is a dividing point uh, in the book. And um, uh, so what we find out here is a different uh, styles of writing. We'll find out um, different ideas will be coming out in uh, chapters that follow after this. Um, the Protestant reformers were much taken with the book of Judges. In an age of mounting despotism, the reformers were <coughs> confronted with absolutism. Um, absolutism in the church where there was a strong uh, pope, uh, a, t a tyranny, um, where the pope was more of a political leader than he was a servant of the people. Um, and uh, we also see this in the political realm uh, where we had the kings and monarchs of Europe uh, declaring divine right to rule. Just because they were king, that must mean that God had given them that right. But the reformers found in judges uh, ammunition against this uh, political trend and the, the trend within the church. They found that uh, judges presented the underlying problems as moral and spiritual uh, disobedience against Christ. And so they stressed that unless the preachers I got busy reforming the church that social conditions would continue to go from bad to worse. The second thing they found in the book of Judges is that the Bible opposed centralized government. 
The ideal Christian uh, republic was decentralized. We saw here in Judges where they were judging five, ten, a hundred, um, and so on, a thousand. Uh, that these are free men that should be ruling by way of God's laws. They saw the book of Judges that, it, <clears throat> that a lust of political power was dangerous, as we just saw with Abimelech, and we will see again with Japheth. And the third thing they found is that uh, in Judges that God sometimes blesses resistant movements when it's really the righteous who are throwing the yoke of genuine persecutors off the back of the people. Martin Bucer was a good friend and confidant of John Calvin and became one of the most important of the reformers and he was the key reformer in Strasbourg, Germany. And he preached through the book of Judges early on uh, in the Reformation. Interestingly enough, Judges uh, was the one of the few books that John Calvin did not tackle. And the basic reason for that was that he was very pleased with what Busser had to say in his commentary. He thought he did a great job. And Busser's commentary on Judges was published in Calvin's Geneva in 1554, thus enabling John Calvin to skip the book and he continued to press on in his lectures in Deuteronomy. Did somebody tell Pastor Calvin that uh, John Calvin got through De Deuteronomy in one year? And uh, was able then to go ahead and preach through uh, the books of Samuel. We know that Calvin's own commitment to Republican form of government and limited government were strongly expressed in the books of Deuteronomy and Samuel. And Bursar went, uh, spent the last few years of his life in England, where his Republican views were favored by the Puritans. And meanwhile, Bursar's close friend, uh, a man by the name of Peter Vermigali, had also lectured through the Book of Judges. And his lectures had been translated into English and published in England. So these made quite an impact and also constituted a strong attack on the political and, and uh, religious absolutism of the day. Thus, with Bursar and Calvin on the one hand and Vermigeli on the other, a strong belief in limited government based on divine law was present for, and reinforced in the British world. The Puritans readily received this tradition and made the book of Judges their own in the eyes of the English Civil War. Later on, the Puritans descended uh, into America and they made the uh, Isra Israeli tribal um, republics the model for which they wanted to establish 13 states loosely united with one constitution, but with no absolute king, and a strictly limited federal government. So you might scratch your head and say, well, why, why is he mentioning Christian political thought here? Well, because a great deal of the remaining part of Judges, and particularly in chapters 10 through 12, uh, this will be the emphasis we'll see here. The trend toward monarchy uh, which began with Gideon, continues uh, with the story of Japheth as his desires to set up a dynasty. Uh, it concerns, in a sense, the seed of, uh, of, to come. Instead of waiting for God's seed of Jesus Christ to come, Japheth is interested in establishing this dynasty on his own. And how God graciously prevents his hopes from coming about. And we'll see that in this section. So inserted in this account it, at this point in, in the book, uh, we begin to see a brief verses concerning the minor judges whose names are not exactly household words. You see them up following Gideon. 
these men seem to have no importance whatsoever and seem to be included simply out of desire for completeness. But actually, uh, the theme of boasting and the tendency towards tyranny is uh, emphasized in these short texts. So it must be understood that uh, every paragraph of Scripture can not, al not always stand by itself. Uh, it doesn't always have a clear, discernible message. Some parts of Scripture only make sense when taken in a larger section or larger context. And such is the case of these minor judges that we'll see here. So we must attempt to see the big picture and see how these small judges fit into that bigger picture. So taken one at a time or even in a group, the stories of these minor judges seem to have little purpose. But taken in a larger context, these remarks are meaningful. And we need to look at the whole forest and not just the individual trees here. So starting next week, we'll start taking a look at these minor judges, the couple of verses that each of them have connected to them, and uh, see how they fit into the larger context. Any comments, questions, or thoughts? Uh, Brother Ken, would you close in a word of prayer, please? Amen.